Great. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're brand new, welcome to you especially. Thank you for joining today. Uh, we are, uh, preaching-wise right now, going to continue our series in the book of 2 Corinthians, the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible or a phone app want to turn there to chapter 11, that's where it will be today, uh, verses 16 to 33. Uh, but we are approaching the end of the book. It's been several months. We have one month, I think, almost uh, to the week uh, left. So we're almost there. We are at the end of the letter. Uh, remember that if you've been here, Paul is uh, going to continue from last week. Uh, talking like, his words, a fool, uh, or his, also his words, a madman. And so today we're going to look at Paul talking like a madman from, again, uh, verses 16 to 33. But this, this has been meaning for Paul that he's starting to talk about himself in a seemingly boastful way. He doesn't want to do this. Uh, we'll see that actually come up next week when he says he feels like his hand has been forced uh, in this area. We'll talk more about that then. Uh, but what he essentially means is he's talking like he's boasting in his flesh or his works, though he's been saying, of course, and we know this if you know the gospel, that the gospel is actually the antithesis of our work, so therefore it's the antithesis of boasting in what we do. It's all about Jesus and boasting in what he has done for us. But uh, contextually, these infiltrating false teachers in Corinth are sending the wrong message, and so Paul is just kind of saying, Pardon me for a minute while I start to sound like them to make a theological point. And as I've been saying for a few weeks now, and kind of this whole series, context sets the stage for the actors of theology to shine. And so it's kind of the backdrop to what we're seeing why, while Paul is talking about himself as a madman and a fool. He actually never does this in any of his other letters uh, in these stark of terms. So if you, um, I said first service too, if you are at all uh, interested in being a student of the Bible or a student of Paul, like wanting to know more about who this man is. Uh, but again, more broadly speaking, a student of New Testament theology, it's actually pretty important to dip our toes in a little bit to this puddle and kind of ask, well, what's he doing? Why is he talking this way? Why does he not want to? But why is his hand forced? What does it mean to talk like a madman? How does that make a theological point, really, about grace and the core nature of the gospel as he confronts these false teachers that are swaying Christians away from good theology, from Jesus, from, like Jesus says in Revelation 2, their first love. All right, so let's read verses 16 to 21 first. Uh, there is, again, a lot going on here. I think it's just better. This passage caters well towards reading it in sections, so we're, gonna, we're not going to read the whole thing in full to begin. But let's just kind of let it unfold here, and this pulls from last week if you were here for that. In uh, how Paul talked. If you weren't, that's okay. We'll kind of catch up as we go. But in uh, verse 16, he starts with the phrase, I repeat, because he's kind of saying the same thing he did, he did last week in the previous verses. Okay, verse 16, Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. All right, so stop here for one second. Uh, Paul, as I said before, Paul is essentially continuing to say, let me boast a little. Uh, in, in myself, and in that boasting, sound like a fool, because fools boast in themselves. 
But he even says here, not as Jesus would, not as the Lord would, which is to say, this is not a command of Christ. I'm essentially, I'm talking like you guys talk, and you guys are the self-righteous fools, though you claim to be wise. So again, remember the Corinthians are entertaining, they're starting to entertain a gospel of strength, not weakness as they should. It's, it's becoming flipped by these super apostles who are infiltrating the church and downplaying Paul and his teaching, kind of upplaying themselves and their Jesus plus theology. So they believe in Jesus, they start well, but they're adding to him, they're believing in another form of him, to quote from last week, another Jesus, another gospel, another Holy Spirit. And so they've succumbed to the all-too-common temptation to start with Jesus, but then to advance to advanced forms of Christianity, which look like ourselves, and emphasizing our good works apart from being attached to the vine, which according to all that Paul is arguing here, is a fleshly version of the gospel or a fleshly version of Jesus. Verses 20 to 21 is interesting. He's definitely talking in hyperbole here when he talks about what the teaching they're listening to is doing to them physically, it's hyperbole, but he is saying that they're being made slaves of by the teaching, they're being devoured, actually eaten by the teaching and being struck by it. So again, these, these um, super apostles and their teaching are not neutral, they're actually harmful. My, my old pastor used to say all the time, I'll never forget it, bad theology hurts people which may sound like an obvious thing to say. It's not always obvious to people, though, but bad theology is not neutral. It's not just like something on a shelf over here that we might consider but then reject because we realize that, that, it's, that it's wrong or something. But a lot of times, it, it's harmful, uh, whether emotionally or spiritually or, or even uh, physically. It's, it's a, a bad theology is a harmful thing, and you kind of see that here. But a lot of this terminal, terminology, and I highlighted a few of them to, to make the point, is actually symbolic of what we hear the Old Testament law does to us in other parts of the Bible. So whether it be in earlier parts of this letter in chapter 3 where Paul says the Old Testament law actually kills us, we can't keep it, 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 it harms us. Uh, sin kind of seeking the opportunity uh, through it, to quote from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, actually causes us harm. Or figurative, so that's more literal, or the more figurative way would be to look at a place like Acts 23, where it says the high priest, who the Bible says represents the law symbolically elsewhere in the Bible, struck Paul in the face, same phrase from today's passage, or where it says in Galatians 3 that the scripture, speaking of the law, imprisoned everything or everyone under sin. It made the problem of sin worse because it held out an impossible to keep standard, as it always does. So the super apostles teaching then what they were, they were doing a lot of things, but they were, again, pushing uh, law obedience as obligatory and necessary to remain in the faith. And Paul's teaching just didn't do that. And so they were, they were different. They, they were stark differences. And that's why you see Paul talk so strongly. It's why the letter exists at all. It's why there's obvious uh, disdain of Paul starting to rise up. If they were similar, you wouldn't have any of that. But there were obvious differences, and that was kind of one of the stark ones, is Jesus uh, was alone, uh, Paul's message. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Uh, the super apostles were anything but that. Uh, they were choosing to know many other things and adding those things as requirements uh, onto the faith um, when, in fact, Jesus never did, and, of course, the Bible doesn't. 
So the Corinthians are bearing then, I would say, to quote from verse 20 here as well, to use a word from it, the, the Corinthians are bearing with the pain of the added requirements and the pain of living underneath a false Jesus who demands things of us that the true Jesus never did and then who presents as a less loving savior. That's a painful thing. It's a harmful thing. But the Corinthians are bearing with that pain. They're like, we can do it. We can stand up underneath this. Uh, And Paul is saying, well, I can't. Maybe you guys can, uh, but I certainly can't. Titus can't. Timothy can't. You know, we're your pastors and we can't. Are you guys ascending above us? Are you stronger than us? It's kind of the sarcastic way he's starting to to talk. And so again, in 21, when Paul says, you know, we're too weak for that, I'm too weak for that, He's saying, I'm too weak for what you are enduring theologically. I'm too weak for the law strikes. I'm too weak for the commandment imprisonments. I'm too weak for it. It's great you guys are stronger. He doesn't actually believe they are. Uh, But again, he's talking like a fool, like a madman, uh, sarcastically. Uh, It's in love, but to make a point here. Uh, And part of that is just to say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm too weak for that. Reminded me in Acts 15, actually, where you see Peter stand up. And if you know the context here, uh, it is lots going on. But essentially, there are Jewish Christians, kind of similar to what's going on in Corinth, actually, who are in uh, Jerusalem at this point, but they're infiltrating, in a sense. They're bringing forth false doctrine. They're saying, they're hearing that Gentiles are becoming Christians. So non-Jewish people are believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They're being saved. They're folded into churches. And these Jewish Christians are coming in saying that we need to require them to obey the law of Moses. This is from the first part of 15. We need to require the Gentiles to obey the law of Moses. And they have a council about it. They actually meet, it's the first historical Christian council we have, and it's in the Bible. And they meet to talk about it. It's lots that's said, but the first guy who stands up is Peter, and he says this to these Jewish Christians. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, speaking of the, the Ten Commandments and the law of the Old Testament, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We were too weak for that. Why are we adding that to others, requiring well, adherence to it? But then he says, but we, this is instead what we believe. This is instead the gospel. We believe that we will be saved And ongoingly so, not just a conversion, but saved every day and saved at judgment through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so I think similarly here, Paul is saying something similar. He's saying, I'm too weak for the law that you are laying like a yoke around your neck. Like, you know, and and that's that's where the, the irony kind of is here, is Paul saying, I led you guys to the faith. I led you guys to Jesus. I started your church. Are you guys passing me up now? Are you strong uh, for that which, that, that, that which I'm not? Um, so Paul is saying again, I'm too weak for the law, and I'm a Jew who was born under it, but now I'm free of it. That's, his, that's been part of his message, right, throughout his whole life. Uh, Book of Acts, but stemming into all of his letters, Paul says, I, I too am a Jew who was born under it, but now I'm, I'm free of it. Are you Corinthian, Gentile, you know, believers, all of a sudden going to be the one generation who can actually stand up underneath the law? You really think that? Um, of course not, but, but this is the way he's starting to talk. All right? Let's keep going for the, in, in the rest of uh, verse 21. We'll keep reading the next um, mini section here. Paul says, But whatever anyone else dares boast of, 
I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. All right, so we're going to stop right there, even mid-sentence, for just a minute to note a couple of things. Um, I think there's kind of two things going on. When Paul's essentially likening himself to the super apostles here to make a couple of points and to build into his next section, which we'll get to. But Paul's likening himself to the super apostles, saying, are they this or that? Well, so am I, right? Are they Jewish? Are Are they Hebrews? Are they sons of Abraham? Well, I'm all those things as well. Which in one sense then is to bring them down to his level, all right? So if this is kind of the way that, that they're being postured, like they're, they're up here and Paul's down here. In one sense, Paul's bringing them down to him to level the playing field a bit. You know, all have sinned. It doesn't matter our pasts. There's no spiritual hierarchies in Christianity. There's no super versions of Christians. There's no, God shows no partiality, it says in James 1 or 2. God shows no partiality. And so in one sense, it's kind of like to underscore that important idea because it, it, it upscores or upplays grace. But another way to look at it would be to kind of flip that around and say, Paul, by saying this, is bringing himself up to their level in talking like a fool. But in order to say, guys, I'm a Jew as well. I know the Old Testament better than, than they do. I've been around the block a few times as a pastor and a theologian. I used to even kill Christians, and now I am one. And now I'm the one being killed all day long for the sake of the church. Doesn't my opinion matter? You know, Paul's essentially saying here, I mean, this would be like someone uh, in like a Minnesota versus Wisconsin debate. You know, it'd be like someone saying, well, I'm from Wisconsin and I still think Minnesota's better. You know, so I know I'm saying that to a room where there was like 10 Packers jerseys in here last week, so bear with me, guys. But it'd be like someone saying, well, I'm from Wisconsin, but I still think this is, you know, a better place to live or a better, I like, I, I like it here better. Versus someone from Minnesota saying that, you'd say, well, of course they think that, right? Paul's saying, guys, I've been to the top of the mountain when it comes to law keeping, and there's no life there. Life is down at the bottom. You guys haven't even been up there yet. I'm much higher than you I was, but I'm telling you as your pastor, as an apostle, as one saved by Jesus, as one just like you in a lot of ways, but also one who's who's different, who is, we'll see this in a minute, who's labored more than you, I'm telling you, ascending is not the answer. Staying low and being okay with Jesus alone is where life is, life is at. All right, more on that in a minute. But then he says this, this is a striking, I mean, all the things he says in today's passage, this is probably um, the one that, I mean, for you may have stuck out the most, it certainly did for me. Then Paul says, In verse 23, are they servants of Christ? Well, I am a better one. It's like, Paul never talks like this. He doesn't want to, right? He sounds like he's bragging in himself, which he says elsewhere, strewn throughout the letter. That's the mark of the unsaved. But Paul's saying, my hand is forced to make a point. Are these people servants? Well, I'm I'm telling you, I'm a better servant. And what he's going to do next is he's going to go on to defend this statement by unpacking his resume a bit. And so now, if, if you didn't read ahead already, some of you guys might know where he goes next, and that's okay. Try to look at this with fresh eyes. But I'm guessing a lot of you have either forgotten or never read this. And so what I want you to do is kind of put your hand, if you have your Bibles open or phone app, just kind of 
literally or figuratively, put your hand over the rest of the passage. Everything that follows the, the word madman, put your hand over that and ask yourself, what do you think comes next? When Paul says, I'm a better servant and here's why, what's the why going to be? What's he going to say? What do you logically think would follow when someone would be in a state of boasting maybe, but just kind of talking about you know, comparing himself to someone else? What do you think he's going to say? What makes the most logical sense? How is he going to argue for himself in being a better servant of Christ? That's actually the big question. What does it mean to be a good servant of Christ? Because Paul's going to flat out say it. What does it mean to be a good servant of Christ? All right, so kind of keep your hand over that, and let's read and just find out if you're right, all right, or partially right, or maybe all right, but, or maybe not all right. Let's just continue to read to find out from verses 23 and following. This is the rest of the passage today. He's going to unpack how he is a better servant, all right? Verse 23, here we go. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weaker? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped his hands. All right, so here we go. Paul the madman. So essentially what he's saying is, again, I'm insane to talk like this. I'm a madman, I'm crazy, I'm a fool, but my hand is forced. So fine, you guys want to talk about works? Let's go. I have far greater labors to my name, and yet I don't rely on them. I have worked much harder than all the false teachers, and yet I'm not pushing comparison to them. I'm not laying them like a yoke around the neck of others. I have far greater labors to my name, far greater reason to count on my works, and yet I refuse to do it. Actually, Philippians 3.4 says something very similar. Paul's writing to a different church here, of course, but he says, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, that is to say, to rely on the good you've done, to rely on whether it's kind of background identity piece things, like being a Hebrew, being a son of Abraham, things like that, or being a law keeper, being a Ten Commandment follower. If anyone has reason to put confidence in those, I have more. I've done more. I was, he, said, he says he was blameless according to the law. He was zealous in all the right ways. It actually wasn't, but he would say that he was before he was a Christian. Zealous in all the right ways for the law 
uh, so much so that he killed Christians uh, and then kind of goes on. But, but part of his resume is just this simple, I've worked harder statement of if anyone has reason to put confidence in him, him or herself, I have more. And again, yet that wasn't the essence of my teaching. That wasn't the center of my gospel. These super apostles are saying that. I've done more than they, but they're the ones who are pushing works to stay saved. I'm not. Doesn't that tell you something? I've done more, and yet they are the ones who are teaching you to rely on the flesh, to add goodness to Jesus, and to abandon grace alone. I mean, doesn't Jesus himself teach us in the parable that in the end, the amount of work we put in won't be compared to others? Think of the parable of the vineyard workers, for example, where where it says in the end that we will all be quote-unquote paid the same. The same grace will be doled out to all of us, good people and bad people, those who worked a lot and those who worked very little. I mean, Jesus isn't like shy about this. That's, that's, it's not like that parable. It's cloudy. It's quite clear. And so Paul starts by saying, I've worked more and yet I preach work less. I've worked more than all of them and yet the center of my message is much less work than what they're saying. You know, it's sort of like, again, like that Minnesota, Wisconsin thing, but it'd be like with, like, the lottery. Someone saying, I've won the lottery, and it didn't give me life. You guys don't want it. And these other people are saying, no, winning the lottery, that's where we'll get life and comfort and all this good stuff. But you haven't won it. How can you say that? I've won it, and I'm telling you, I've been to the top of the mountain. There is no life there. The top of the mountain of the law, the top of the mountain of what you do will define you. What you do will keep you saved. I've tried it. It doesn't work. I came all the way down. In fact, when Jesus saved me from my sins, speaking again on Paul's behalf, uh, Paul says, I fell to the ground. The light was so bright. And that's what happens to you and me when we're saved. We don't stand up. We fall down because the gospel brings us low in a loving, healthy, good way. And it makes Christ big, right? Because we're saved by his grace, not by what we do. And so when Paul continues then, he talks, after this first clause, he spends the rest of the list talking about his sufferings, right? Uh, it's a laundry list you guys may have read before, maybe not. But again, um, maybe it's not what you expected to see when you put your hand over that section and guessed what he might say when he's arguing for why he is a greater servant of Christ. Because he's saying, I'm a better servant. Why? Because I pray more, or evangelize the lost more, or love more, or go to church more, or keep the Ten Commandments more. None of that's there. Instead, he says, because I suffered with Christ more. That's what makes me a better servant of Christ. I've suffered with Christ more than they have. There's a few things we can take from this, um, and I throw them all up here. I'll just go through them. The first, I think, is Paul essentially saying here, I'm a greater servant because I've learned that it's not about me. That's part of what it means to grow, uh, part of what it means to be um, a, a good servant of Jesus Christ, especially in his position as a leader of others. Uh, second, he's meaning here, I'm greater because I've learned to rely on God's grace, not my flesh. For how could I go through all of this if I believe that God rewarded me for my deeds? In other words, 
I labor more than all of you, yet my life is worse than yours. Why is that? Like those of you who are pushing reward-based Christianity, uh, tit-for-tat-based Christianity to the super apostles, if I worked harder than all of you, if I'm a better servant than all of you, yet my life is worse than all of you, how, riddle me this, how does that work? Tell me. This is where he starts to get a bit pokey, you know. Tell me how that works. Now, if it's works-based, if it's karma-based, then my life should be the best, the, the least full of suffering. But we're saved by grace. We receive from God good and bad. We receive from God, like Job said, right, uh, to his wife when he was suffering. How can we receive good from God and not evil? We receive all from God. We, we earn nothing. We climb nothing. We do, we, we, nothing we do turns his face. He loves us as we are. He turns to us. He dies for us. He descends for us, right? This is the gospel. And so if, if Paul was operating off of a workspace system, I mean, at some point you've got to throw the towel in. But he doesn't because he lives by grace. He's, he's saying we are, as Christians, we should be the antithesis of a reward-based religion. Then third, to pull from Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of being content with Jesus alone. So, again, here's the, one of the big questions that I think this passage um, is not, this, this is not necessarily Paul's main thing here, but it's definitely a, a tributary. It's definitely a, a, a bunny trail. And that is, what does it mean to be a good servant of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? And what Paul's getting with this laundry list of things here, primarily being about suffering, what he's gone through, what he's received from God. Remember when Jesus said to Paul, I will show him, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. All these things are graces, they're gifts, even the difficult things, and there, there are many of them. But what does it mean to be a good servant? Paul's answer, at least in this list, is it's not what we do, but it's our trust in God through difficulty. Or we call that faith. We call that living not by sight, right, but by faith, to quote him elsewhere in this letter. It's our reliance on his blood alone. It's our reliance on his grace daily. It's not our performance, but it's dependence on God's performance every single day, like, like daily bread. This is why we take communion, right? This is why Israel ate the manna in the desert and no other food, because the manna represented Jesus. This is why Jesus is in John 6, now the new manna is me. When he establishes communion, like, we eat the one thing. Like, we don't eat, the, the, Israel ate one type of food in the desert, not a bunch of foods, one type of food. Just like as Christians, we're in that desert space now, according to Hebrews 3 and 4, we nourish ourselves on one type of food, not many types of food. It's not, the, the, the table before us right now is not a cornucopia. It's very, in one sense, you could look at it from the world's perspective, it's very, very, very bland. Very bland. And a lot of Israelites thought that. They were bored with the manna, they went back to Egypt, or they died in the desert, right? In the same way, the challenge is, are we bored with Christ alone? Do we want the cornucopia? Do we want the quail? Do we want the meat? Was life better? The super apostles are holding out a cornucopia. Paul's holding out the bread alone. And it's just flat out different. They cannot coexist. David Cassidy uh, says on this subject matter of sanctification, which um, if you don't know what that is, it's basically a word that um, refers to 
what Christian life should look like between conversion and death? So it's a big question. Um, the process of becoming more, um, made more into Christ's image, as the Bible talks about, becoming more one with him, growing, maturing. What is that? What does that mean? What should that look like? It's actually a really big question that, that Christians have disagreed on for a very long time. The Reformation happened over this, uh, where the Reformers said the Catholics have it wrong, big time, and so they shifted theologically. It has been something, even today, Protestants disagree there's just different lanes, general agreement, but um, different kind of more uh, sub-lanes we kind of find ourselves in sometimes. But, um, but this, I think this is helpful. This is not like a holistic definition or anything like that, but I think this is a helpful thing that jives well with what Paul is saying here. But David Cassidy says, Sanctification is not a work of grace that helps me do better. No, it, it's a grace that more and more opens my eyes to the shattering realization of how desperately I need the Savior, and this is the key, every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. Christ in me, one with me because of my faith in, in the gospel, is my only hope of eternal life, my only hope of, of glory and the fullness of life now. And I think this is why, uh, too, he includes this last part about being lowered in a basket, which might have felt out of place. Um, but that's actually a reference back to Acts 9, 23 to 25. Um, but if we ask this question of why is Paul referring to a story where he was, you know, people wanted to kill him, and then these people lowered him out of a window, um, you know, uh, it says through a wall, but then out a window, and then down to the, down to the ground, it's just such a, almost a humorous thing. I always picture Paul um, looking a lot smaller than he probably really was, like baby Paul or something, because how do you fit a guy in a basket? But anyway, um, but it's a really humbling thing, or would have been, and Paul cites it. And, and so if we ask, well, how does this fit with the greater list? He just went through the laundry list of sufferings or with the gospel itself, or how this underscores his I am a better servant, foolish argument. I think the answer is in the theology of it. And here's three big things we see uh, in, in this story. Basically what Paul is saying is, I was saved in that story at the hands of another. Just like I was saved from my sins by the hands of Christ, not by the good works of my hands. He's also saying saved, the, the story underscores saved as through a wall, like Christ saved him by breaking down the wall of hostility that existed between him and God, to quote Ephesians 2. There's some symbolism there. And then three, saved as in the act of descending, which is a wonderful metaphor for Paul's and our spiritual life, if you're a Christian here today. We descend, not ascend. When we become Christians, we stop trying to self-deify, we stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like Adam and Eve, treacherously, sadly, horrifyingly did. We're, we're saved from ourselves, not just our ba the bad things we've done, but the good things we've done apart from God. Uh, we're saved from our individualism. We're, we, we actually stop, we close our mouths, and we, we worship and thank God again for sending his son to die and to do everything for us. Uh, it's, it's, it is the, Christianity is like the epitome of humility and joy. 
because it's so much not about us, but yet so much about God and what he thinks of us and how much he loves us and how much he came to rescue us because we had that much like value in his eyes, even as sinners. So Paul here is like, I think, like, it's actually very appropriate because he's underscoring this idea of descent where we become creatures again, where we live in the gospel, you know, and, and this is true for all of you, actually. This is your story. If you're a Christian, this basket-lowering story is actually yours. You may have never thought about it in these terms before, but it actually is true, not just at conversion, but every day. Like, we, when we believe the gospel, we are effectively, gently, let out of the window of our reckless attempts at building a tower of good works into heaven like at Babel in Genesis 11. That's what happened. We're let out of the window of recklessly building a tower of good works into heaven like the the nations did at Babel in Genesis chapter 11. In fact, I I think this passage is is like the the antithesis of Babel. Like you have the Babel story, if you know what that whole story is, I kind of summarized it. But then you have Paul coming down versus going up as a Christian. And so, so Paul here, I think, is saying, that, again, the super apostles are climbing the exterior of the building like Spider-Man with their teaching, but I was lowered in a basket at the hands of others. Which Christianity do you want? Do you want the building scaling one or do you want the basket lowering one? You cannot have both. And only one is true. Anyway, and so in a lot of ways, this story is the the most appropriate story he could have referenced from his life precisely because it's odd and precisely because it doesn't celebrate him in the slightest, but it celebrates the hands of others, ultimately Christ. That's what he's saying. I'm a good servant because that happened. And you might say, well, wait a minute. You're a good servant because you didn't do anything? He's saying, yes! That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm a good servant because, I was, because others did something for me and I chose to recklessly, crazily believe that. It's not about me. I've chosen to throw myself headlong into grace every day of my life, even at the expense of other Christians who think they know better, to sneer at my simple-hearted faith in Jesus alone, like the Pharisees before them. That's my story. Is that enough for you, Corinthians? Or have you gotten wise in your own eyes? Are you putting the cape on as I speak? Are you ascending the the side of the the building like Spider-Man with, you know, by adding the requirement of your good works to Jesus and flexing your muscles when I was lowered? Are you smarter than I am? Are you better than I? Do you know did I miss something in the Bible? Like, show me the verse. Where does it say this? Where's the teaching? And so, and here's something that's actually kind of easy to miss. It stands out glaringly, though, when, when you think about it in relation to his greater list of sufferings. Paul says, I was let down in the basket. And then he says, I escaped his hands. So it's a really interesting way the whole passage ends because the whole thing's full of his sufferings, and yet you see, but Paul never dies. You know, like in all these things, he never kicks it, never takes his last breath. Like he's, like, he's stoned, he was shipwrecked, lost at sea, almost starved to death. He was, you know, he had the 40 lashes minus one, which killed a lot of people, just that alone. Um, 
because it uh, tore up the back so much and exposed internal organs if it was bad enough. Uh, but Paul is like, Paul went through everything and yet he didn't, he, he didn't die. And in this story, this guy wanted to kill him, but, but he escaped. And so Paul's saying kind of two things. I suffered more than all of you and yet I also escaped suffering. The way I escaped is through Jesus' seizing and his crucifixion. Because you see, Jesus didn't escape at the hands of the crucifiers. This is the gospel, you guys. Jesus didn't escape. Paul escaped. We escaped. But Jesus didn't escape. But instead was seized and instead was crucified. So in this, Paul's laundry list here is actually Christ's. But with a twist. And I threw it on the screen here for clarity. I'll just read through this. It is to say that we, so I'm lumping ourselves in here with Paul. We had anxiety but he sweat blood in the garden before he died. We were shipwrecked in our sin, but he was the ship that was broken apart to provide flotation for castaways to the island. We were in danger from robbers, but he was crucified among robbers. We're in danger outside the city, but he was crucified outside the city for us. We were in danger at sea, but he was swallowed by the sea like Jonah before him. We had sleepless nights, but he was put to sleep, to death in the tomb to carry our sins far, far away. We could go on. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, have you guys looked at my life? Why are you moving on from that which God wants you to see replayed every day of your life and mine? Though we suffer sometimes immensely, Christ suffered more for you and me so we can escape from, our, from that which truly threatens us, which is sin and death and the devil in our hard hearts. The problem that we really faced, which was separation from our, our creator. That's what Jesus bridged. That's the essence of Christianity that the super apostles are doing this to. They're, they're taking their focus off of that with their teaching and their posture and their pompousness. They're boasting. And Paul's saying, look, okay, I'll play that game. I'll be a fool too for a little while to show you that I have actually more to boast in, but I'm not. If there was ever anybody who could say there, is a there was a religion that could save you by what you do, it would be me out of all the other people who've ever lived. And yet I'm saying that's not it. So why are you trying to do it? Stop it. Stop it and believe in Jesus Christ alone that he actually loves you, that you cannot add to it. He did not suffer. He did not go to hell and back. He didn't, he didn't walk the road. He didn't sweat blood. He didn't get swallowed up by death itself for, for, because it wasn't enough. I mean, this is crazy. Paul's saying this is crazy. And so relax, church. Relax, Corinthians. Relax, Hiawatha. You guys are loved by God right now. You're loved right now in this room. doesn't matter what you've done this morning or with your life. doesn't matter what's going to happen with your life. Nothing you do can add to it. Nothing. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And it's only then that you and I will be freed up to love and serve others. We, we just simply cannot do that when we're so focused on ourselves. It's only then we'll be freed up to put others first and, you know, to be at the bottom of the mountain or the building and be okay, you know. I, th I think our life 
Uh, in fact, you could call, this would be a book title maybe, but Life at the Bottom of a Building, I just thought of that. Uh, Christianity, Life at the Bottom of a Building. Sanctification, Life at the Bottom of the Building. Uh, descending, not colon, de- I'm just kidding. <laughs> descending, not ascending. It's, yeah, it doesn't matter, okay. Um, it, it's only then that we'll be freed up to, you cannot love people when you're told to. When does that work? Parents in the room. When you tell your kids to do something, good luck. Why are we different? The gospel produces the fruit. Rumination on Jesus' life produces the fruit. Communion produces the fruit. Worship, thankfulness produces the fruit. Knowing our story, how much we're loved, produces, how much we've been forgiven, produces the fruit. The tree of life, the cross, produces the fruit. It's Christ's fruit, not the tree of morality that Eve and Adam ate from in the beginning. Life at the bottom of the building is better. It's better to be servants, not superheroes, because of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this passage. Thank you for what it means for us. These are, these are difficult things. I'm guessing um, there are people in the room that just, um, as Christians, just don't agree with this because it actually is scandalous, and there's a lot of teaching, false teaching in the world today that sounds a lot like the super apostles and that's part of the message is to understand that, understand the threat. Um, God, you love us deeply. You, you, know, you knew this would be the case in, in the 21st century. And so 2 Corinthians survived for us, for the, for the global church today. Um, any teaching that's adding to Christ and putting the, the focus, the, the onus for perseverance back on what we do, how good of a, of a life we live, how much we kill our sin, how much we pray, how much we evangelize. I mean, again, Paul could have said all of that in his laundry list. He didn't. Even though prayer and evangelism and things like that are good things, part of our life, absolutely, gifts that you give us and fruit that you produce in the life and context of a, a thriving local church, uh, those are not the center um, Knowing the center, knowing the sun versus the planets is crucial. And we muck it up, I muck it up all the time. We muck it up all the time because we're sinners, we're self-justifiers. We're sons and, uh, and daughters of Adam and Eve who ate from that tree. But thanks be to God, now through Christ, we are sons and daughters of the second Adam, of the king. And our identities are changing, our thought patterns are changing. Everything's changing. That includes how we view sanctification and our daily lives. So... God, help us to nourish ourselves afresh today. Whatever tomorrow has doesn't matter. To focus right now on receiving the bread of Jesus' broken and given body for us by faith and hailing you as king and thanking you uh, for becoming a servant to serve us. In him we pray, amen.